This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley at the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus Chat. If today's your first time in a Bright Focus Chat, welcome. Let me tell you a little bit about Bright Focus and what we'll do today. Bright Focus funds some of the top researchers in the world. We support scientists who are trying to find cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We share the latest news from these scientists with families who are impacted by these diseases. We have a number of free publications and plenty of materials on our website, brightfocus.org, that offer tips for living with diseases like macular degeneration. Bright Focus chats are another way of sharing this information. Today's Bright Focus chat is macular degeneration, your questions answered. And why we're doing this today is we've been really fortunate to get up a large number of questions during our Bright Focus chats. And Unfortunately, we're not able to answer all of them uh, in that time, so we thought that, that periodically we would take a break and go back and ask some of the questions that we didn't have time to, to, to answer in previous chats. And, and today we're really lucky to have these questions answered by one of the top researchers in, in the field of macular degeneration, Dr. Milan Brantley of Vanderbilt University. And uh, Dr. Brantley, uh, you've been very generous with your time uh, in previous chats, and we're, we're thrilled to to have you here. I was wondering if you could just start off for a minute or two, just some basics about macular degeneration, in case we have folks that are that are new to the disease or uh, checking in for the first time, maybe on behalf of a family members. Just wonder if you could just give a brief overview of, of the disease and some of the current treatments. Sure. Uh, well, thank, thanks, Michael. I, I really appreciate the uh, invitation to participate today. Um, you know, most of your listeners are going to be well familiar with age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, but just a few brief words. Um, many of the terms that patients or their friends or caregivers have heard about are things like dry AMD or wet AMD. Now, AMD is, as its name mentions, involves the macula, or the center part of the eye, and a part of the retina, and that's where our central vision comes from. So AMD really affects central vision only, typically. And there are, there are several gradations of AMD. When we hear about the dry, we usually think of the early forms of macular degeneration, and that involves these small deposits right underneath the retina. We can see them when we look in the back of people's eyes, and they're yellow in color, and they're called drusen. And these drusen mark early or even intermediate AMD. Now, that's one category. The other category is advanced AMD. Now, intermediate and early AMD, they really don't usually affect someone's vision at all. They might not even know they have it until somebody looks in the back of their eye and notices changes. But the advanced AMD really comes in two types. One is the thing that most people have heard about, and that's wet AMD. Now, wet, of course, doesn't mean that the eye feels wet or it's tearing or something like that, but it means it's wet in terms of there's fluid or sometimes blood within or underneath the retina. And this is caused from abnormal blood vessels that grow under the retina, and they leak that blood or fluid. That's why it's called wet. There's another form of advanced AMD called geographic atrophy. Atrophy just means it doesn't have any shape anymore. What that means is there are no cells there. The retinal cells are gone. And it's called geographic because it kind of looks like a map when we look in the back of the eye. That also can severely affect vision. So two types of advanced, geographic atrophy and wet, 
AMD. Wet is also known as exudative or neovascular AMD. Most of the treatments that we know about involve the wet AMD, and those are the intravitreal injections, the injections in the eye that patients or some of their friends may get on a routine basis to treat the wet AMD. There is, that's the big treatment for wet, and there's not really a big treatment for dry. There is, there are the vitamins, the eye vitamins, typically the age-related eye disease or AREDS vitamins that are, that can help prevent the progression from early AMD to the advanced forms of AMD. AMD. And I'd be happy to talk more about either of those forms or the treatments in more detail. Yeah, well, great. Thank you. I know um, uh, you're one of the leading uh, clinicians and, and see, a, see a number of patients um, uh, on these diseases, on this disease. And so a lot of the questions today may be, uh, you know, kind of common questions that you get, and I think um, be, be good for our listeners to, to, to hear, to learn more about it. So I'd like to start off with Elizabeth from Massachusetts has a question about being out in the sun, and it's obviously a very timely question, you know, for most most parts of the country. We get plenty of plenty of sun these days. Elizabeth wonders, she says, I played, you know, growing up, she played tennis, she skied, she did a lot of boating, um, all out in the sun. Um, she's wondering, you know, was that, were those years uh, a risk factor for AMD? That's actually a really great question. And as a matter of fact, we don't get that question very often, but it's a good one. So there have been a few studies, a small number, that have looked at light exposure, sunlight exposure, and the risk of AMD. The bottom line is they've been relatively inconclusive or at least haven't shown a strong risk factor for light. Now, having said that, we generally encourage patients to wear sunglasses when they're outside. I've been wearing sunglasses outside uh, since my teenage years, and will continue to do so because I think even if there's a small risk of any light damage to the retina, sunglasses is a pretty easy fix to that, um, or at least a, a way to prevent that light. Um, but again, when the big studies were done, and, and there was a specific one that looked at um, People who were boatmen, watermen out uh, in Chesapeake Bay and fishermen, that sort of thing, and they didn't really find any much of a difference in those who were exposed to light versus people who weren't. Uh, again, still regardless of that, I think at this point wearing sunglasses when you're outside is a pretty good idea. Yeah, well, no, it's great. And, and just I'd like to stay on the sunglasses for a moment. I feel like when you go to the store and you're looking at sunglasses, they all have stickers on them proclaiming that that particular product is, you know, the best, you know, mm -hmm. the best thing that's ever out there. Do you have any kind of general guides for people that are looking to follow um, your advice and, and wear sunglasses more often in terms of well, selecting, you know, what, what type? Sure, sure. I think in general, um, you know, what you're looking for is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm long since the point where I care too much about the fashion of my sunglasses, and I'm interested in UVA and UVB protection. The vast majority of sunglasses, good sunglasses, will give you that. Um, a, a cheaper pair might not. So you look for those sorts of things. And that's kind of a, a rule for everyone. Now, if somebody particularly has AMD, and as we get older, we need more light. And so we might want to wear those sunglasses in some uh, situations where they can cut glare for us. 
And sometimes some of those amber-colored glasses that you can uh, find, and you know, I'm old enough to remember the old blue blocker glasses, commercials on TV, uh, sometimes those can cut the glare, cut the UVA, UVB, without dimming things for us, and that seems to really help. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, that's, that's great. I appreciate that. Um, I know in your opening you talked a little bit about some of the, the treatments, and um, we have several questions uh, about injections for wet AMD. Okay. To start with, uh, Bob from New Jersey one asks, is there any danger from getting shots for wet AMD every month over a period of lifetime as a preventative measure? Um, he wonders, how many shots can a person receive um, without getting uh, any negative effects? That's another really good question, and we get that one all the time. Um, there, the main thing to remember, and I get, a, I have a lot of people come into my office and they say, "Well, my friend so and so, or my sister, she gets shots down over here, and she gets them all the time, and it seems like we only do them every two months. How come there's a difference?" And the real kind of to back up for just a second, the real answer is that some people and their AMD simply need injections more often to keep that fluid at bay. I have patients in my clinic who, if I don't give them a shot every month, they start to notice it, they start to lose a little bit of vision, and if we do a little test, we can find some fluid underneath the retina. On the other hand, I have other patients in my clinic who we will treat when they have the wet AMD, we will get rid of all of the fluid, We'll sort of spread out the injections for a while, go maybe not every month, but every six weeks, and then every two months, and then maybe even every three months. And those people can stay on every three months or two months is pretty common. And if we stop or if they have to miss an injection for some emergency, then they might see some fluid. But as long as they're getting an injection every two or three months, they're just fine. And then I have another group of patients that we can get that fluid under control they might miss an injection. They might go away and come back and found out they didn't have an injection for six months and they're doing great. We don't necessarily start things up again. We just watch very closely. So the big trick here is that different people need different amount of the anti-VEGF medication, those injections. And doctors are trying really hard to tailor that treatment for the individual patients. And so, like I said, I have different patients on different amounts. Now, my goal in general is if we can accomplish the exact same vision and accomplish um, getting rid of the fluid and keeping it at bay with fewer injections, then I'm all for that because that means the patient has to come in fewer times to the office. Perhaps their family members have to get off work fewer times to bring them in. And so we'll often try to do that. I'll try to increase the time between injections. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And we go from there. And that's called, you, people may have heard of a treat, and then you try to extend the time between injections, or a treat and extend. But I'll tell you that different people, different amounts. So I have some people who injection every month, and if we don't do it, they're upset, and I know that it's going to be a problem, and we'll get them in just as soon as we can to get that injection done. There is a theoretical risk of the more procedures, the more times, you have injections that perhaps the retina can thin out over time. Now, that's hard to measure because that's part and parcel for the disease, too. So if 
if doctors look at patients and they notice, well, I've been treating this person for four years every month, and now their retina seems like it's thinned out a little bit. Hmm, I wonder if that's not good. But if you hadn't treated them at all, maybe that same thing would have happened, yeah. and it's hard to it's hard to know sometimes. So my kind of mantra is give the fewest number of injections that can keep things well controlled, uh, and and that is indeed different from different people, different for different people. So you know when you compare yourself to your friends or your neighbors or your sister, it it may simply be different. Yeah, well that's that's good advice to really to to. You know, have that one-on-one conversation with your mm-hmm. with your physician, and and kind of in that in, in in that vein of hearing about you know your friends and neighbors and family, you know their treatments. Uh, we have a question where somebody uh, had heard that sometimes uh, an injection for wet AMD can can cause somebody to see double um, as a side effect. Um, does, does, uh, do you have any uh, comments on that? It's a pretty specific question and a pretty specific symptom. Um, Double vision, when described by patients, is typically something that involves the two eyes not lining up well. There are times, and this this sounds counterintuitive, but there are times when somebody's vision in one eye is just really, really bad, and they're only seeing out of the other eye, so they've got one image. Then they get treated with the injection. It clears the fluid a little bit, and they have then a blurry image of the other eye. If they have an underlying condition where their eyes don't line up perfectly unless they're able to see with both eyes, that one eye can drift away. Now, because of the injection making their vision better, they're actually seeing two copies of something, whereas before they were just seeing the one from the one good eye. That's pretty unusual. Sometimes people describe double vision, and what they really mean is just blurry vision. And that may be not necessarily related to the injection itself, but the disease causing things to warp and look blurry. And then you look with one eye, and it looks one way, and the other eye looks another way, and your brain just can't put those two things together. Um, I think it's pretty rare to have a double vision as a result of the injection, but it's not maybe super rare to have some feeling of double vision with AMD and with the with the process itself. No, I appreciate that. And as we mentioned at the outset, you're uh, one of the leading researchers um, uh, in the world on macular degeneration. And, and we have a few questions um, today um, about the kind of the, the, the state of research and what, what's, um, you know, the current state and what's, what's encouraging. For example, one... Uh, one caller wonders, how far away is science uh, from stem cells being able to regrow uh, the retina? Well, that's a really great question and is probably one of the most common questions I get in the, the clinic today. And to do a good job of answering that, let me back up just a little bit and talk about the different kinds of stem cells. Uh, and then you can ask some specific questions about that. Um, You know, I see patients with macular degeneration as well as inherited retinal conditions such as retinitis pigmentosa and Stargard macular dystrophy, and everybody wants to know about stem cells because they've heard about it on on the radio or seen it on the Internet, or now more and more people know someone who knows someone or they know someone themselves who's had stem cell treatment. But what does that mean? So there are three basically different kinds of stem cells that are being considered 
or used for treatment for retinal diseases such as AMD. The thing about stem cells and what makes them stem cells is they have a, an ability to be pluripotent. Now, that's just a big fancy word that we break it down. Potent means it can do something, and pluri means it can do multiple things. So a stem cell has the ability to develop into different kinds of stem, uh, excuse me, different kinds of cells. For instance, a retina cell or a bone marrow cell, a blood cell. Three or four years ago now, uh, some researchers took some embryonic stem cells, made them sort of like RPE cells, and injected them into the eye to treat patients with AMD and patients with Stargard macular degeneration. It's a very small number of people. It didn't seem to cause trouble, which is the first thing you want to know in any study. And some people seem to see maybe a little bit better. But there's a long way to go on this and a lot more research to be done. A second type of stem cell is called an induced pluripotent stem cell. People really have probably heard about this one because this is when you hear about somebody getting a skin cell taken from their body and then converted into a different kind of cell. And it's converted or induced by putting it in a culture dish and treating it with specific genes that make it act like an early cell again, kind of make it like an embryonic stem cell. So induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs, are those skin cells that can be converted into cells like retinal pigment epithelial cells. This has huge potential, but it's still in the early stages, very early stages. And recently in Japan, um, an iPSC type RPE cell was injected into someone for AMD, and they did okay. And then a second person, they started to have some issues wondering if the cell uh, had changed some. And that's one of the concerns for induced cells is that maybe there can be some genetic changes that make the cell behave differently than one would expect. So they decided that they would make banks of induced cells from different people and inject them and again, I think this has great potential in the long run. And both of these cases, the embryonic stem cells and the induced cells, are attempts to make cells function like RPE cells in the eye. Also, they might have the ability to reduce some to produce growth factors or molecules that help the cells that are still alive function okay. The third type, and is probably what most people have heard about, are adult stem cells, and the most common types are bone marrow-derived stem cells. Now, bone marrow cells are used in, to treat other diseases. You may have heard of somebody having cancer. They have leukemia. That's a bad type of blood cell, so they get radiation that gets rid of all of their blood cells, and they get replaced with bone marrow transplant. We've heard that a lot. But people are now beginning to use bone marrow stem derived stem cells, which normally go into blood cells, to treat eye conditions. And this is where people have, you know, actually go to clinics. It's not so much at research institutions, but at clinics and they pay money and they get this treatment. And this has been done several hundred times now. Probably the most common type of treatment that's been done for eye diseases. Now, a lot of less is known is that. Less is known about that. They're not trying to make RPE cells out of this or eye cells. They're basing this on hoping that those stem cells can produce 
some sort of molecules that help the cells that are already in your eye. Um, so this is a very different kind of thing. And again, that probably is what's been most in the uh, newspapers recently. And I can I can answer more specific questions about yeah, any of those. No, that's great. You, it's funny you, you uh, proactively answered several of the, uh, the questions <laughs> that are that are that are uh, listeners have, particularly about about um, uh, the study in Japan. And kind of related to that, just want, we have a question. Um, uh, it, you know, a lot of this, uh, this work came about through clinical trials. So, just sort of, you're kind of staying on that research topic for another moment, Doctor Doctor Brantley. What would you say to patients um, of yours that that might be interested in clinical trials? Like, either how should they learn more about them, or is there sort of a common question or concern uh, that arises when you talk with your patients about clinical trials? I think the number one thing to inform people about is that all clinical trials are not created equal and that there's some differences between what one person might call a clinical trial and what another person might call a clinical trial. Um, and there are differences in the stringency and what is being reported in clinical trials. I think uh, the Bright Focus publication is just a wonderful place to start and is a great resource for people looking for a place they can go and get information that they can trust. You know, the Internet is a good thing and a bad thing because you get a lot of information from it, um, but it's not always uh, validated. Um, but that Bright Focus publication is really an excellent place to start. And I you know, like to encourage my patients to look there to understand in, in language that's easy to comprehend more about clinical trials. Secondly, there is a trial, uh, excuse me, there is a website called clinicaltrials.gov, clinical trials being one word, .gov, and that is the site that all clinical trials in the country have to be registered on. Um, and so if I want to take patients in my clinic and I want to treat somebody with something, and maybe I have a group that I'm not treating and I want to see what the difference is, that's a clinical trial, and I have to register that with the clinicaltrials.gov, and it makes a lot of sense. Now, registering it doesn't necessarily mean it's government-approved, even though it's on the government website. It's just registered. So there's confusion about that. Oh, you know, this is a government approved thing. Well, it, not necessarily. Many of them have been funded by uh, grants from the government, and in that way it was sort of approved. The process was approved. And all clinical trials need to have any sort of human studies work has to have an approval for an uh, institutional review board. Again, there's some differences there. For instance, Vanderbilt University has one, and anytime we do any sort of human-involved studies, we get the approval of people who are knowledgeable but outside our general field, and uh, we have input from the community and make sure that everything makes sense and does not do any damage to, to people and that it's, uh, people are treated justly and equitably. Um, that's very important, so any clinical trial should have that. One of the things that's important is that in a randomized clinical trial where you have a treatment group and a control group, that's when you find out the best evidence of is this thing, this treatment that we want to look at, better than doing nothing or better than doing whatever the current treatment is. 
that gives you the best type of evidence. Um, typically, when we hear about clinical trials, we hear about something that, you know, for instance, in stem cells, we're going to do this clinical trial, we're going to treat 30 patients, we've treated our 30 patients, now we're going to report our results for those 30 patients, and they'll report whatever the results were, what percentage of patients got better, what percentage of patients, you know, didn't change much, and maybe even what percentage of patients had trouble, had a complication or something. There are other things that call themselves clinical trials, but also haven't reported that sort of information. Um, you can find these on that website too. Uh, and so it's like we're recruiting a bunch of people and we're going to treat them. But what's the plan to give that report or what's the insight? So, yeah. so it, I think it's just really important to, to realize a clinical trial is not a clinical trial is not a clinical trial. And, and again, it's so much easier to see some, the information like this gathered in one place like the, uh, the Bright Focus publication. So I, I would really recommend that as a great place for well, people thanks. to start. Yeah, I well, appreciate that. I really um, think you made some great, great distinctions there. Uh, and you know, we're off to uh, move away from research and, and conclude you know, with a few minutes of conversation about medication and supplements. But I want to remind our sure. listeners that um, Bright Focus has uh, additional materials that are free of charge that will address some of the um, some of the, new, the the medication and supplements that we'll talk about over the next few minutes. And it's called Macular Degeneration: uh, Essential Facts. And that will that will give a lot of a lot of the information about supplements that we'll be talking about. And again, that's that's available uh, free of charge um, by staying on the line at the end of the call. And um, uh, Dr. Brantley, a lot of the questions about uh, the supplements involve something called AREDS. A R E D S. Sure. I was wondering if you could uh-huh. um, kind of briefly uh, talk about what what uh, AREDS or ARIDS, depending on your pronunciation, uh, <laughs> right. is. And you know, then maybe we'll turn to a few specific questions about about um, supplements. Absolutely. And I think this is something that every person with AMD needs to understand. Um, The Age-Related Eye Disease Study, or AREDS, AREDS, was a large National Eye Institute-sponsored study that was completed somewhere around the year 2000. And it looked at a combination of antioxidants and zinc to see whether this combination of vitamins could slow down the progression of patients with the earlier intermediate AMD advancing on to the bad types of AMD that I talked about earlier, either the geographic atrophy or the wet AMD. And this original ARIDS formula had some vitamin C, vitamin E, beta carotene, and zinc. And there was a little copper thrown in to offset the zinc. And the results basically were that over a five-year period, it actually did reduce your chance of progression by about 25%. And, you know, that's pretty good. And so uh, we recommended patients use the AREDS vitamins. Um, The things to remember about that is that's not for everybody. That's for people who have signs of intermediate AMD. So the people who had no AMD or just the very early touches of it, so few people progressed, they couldn't really study it in those people. And it's also not for people who are 30 years old and their parents have AMD and they just don't want to get it. We don't know what those results would be. Um, But anyway, the ARID study showed that, and, and that's what we could recommend for people. Well, a few years after that, 
because of a couple of reasons, there was a thought, well, you know, there, beta carotene is, you know, that's what we all hear about. Eat your carrots and maybe you'll see better. Um, that's the, the, the vitamin A form. But there are other carotenes, uh, and these are lutein and zeaxanthin, and most people have heard of those, that naturally occur in the eye. They are natural antioxidants, and they sit in the retina, and they probably block out some light. And so the thought was, well, what if we could, what if instead of using beta carotene, we use lutein and zeaxanthin? See how that would work. And they also tried to see if reducing the amount of zinc might help. Um, and this was the ARED2 study. And the bottom line, oh, oh, the other thing they tried to do is do fish oils uh, help in preventing the progression to advanced AMD? And the kind of the answers to all those questions from the AREDS too were fish oils didn't really help one way or the other compared to the original AREDS formula. Lutein and zeaxanthin were a pretty good replacement for beta carotene, and there was a tiny risk of increased risk of um, lung cancer in smokers with the beta carotene. So that was a good thing to replace anyway. So the bottom line now is that there's an AREDS two formula, which has again vitamin C, vitamin E, this time lutein and zeaxanthin and the all-important zinc. And that is the formula that I recommend that patients with intermediate AMD in both one or both eyes or advanced AMD in one eye and not yet advanced AMD in the other eye that they take to try to prevent progression of, of AMD. Well, that's great. Thank you for mentioning, you know, elaborating on that and specifically what you, what you encourage your patients to, to do. And related to that, we have a question of person you know, understandably, it gets a little confused at the supermarket where there are so many vitamin <laughs> supplements that are available, and yeah. according to this person, they all claim to be AREDs. Do you have any um, uh, consumer tips that you could uh, add to that question? <laughs> well, yeah, I've been down the aisle at the at the grocery store or, or at the pharmacy, and there are scores and scores of I vitamins, and there it seems like every time I go, there's a different one there. Um, there are actually very few that um, follow the AREDS2 formula. Now, if it says AREDS2 on there, then you're barking up the right tree and you're doing the right thing. Um, there are a couple of brands that we know that do that, and, and those, are, those are reasonable. And if you, you know, if you have any concern, you can always look online or ask and, and get the ingredients or simply ask the pharmacist there. Um, I want, my doctor said, AREDS2, can you help me find that one? And most of the time, they'll be able to go right to it. Well, that's great. And, and time for a couple more questions about uh, kind of drug interaction and, and sort of other medications. Um, Gay from California is wondering, uh, is there any evidence that ibuprofen could contribute or dam to AMD or damage uh, AMD, and kind of concerns me possibly about dosages for ibuprofen. Not that I know of. As long as one is sticking to normal recommended doses of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen, um, just in general, there are limits to what one should use. And I know that people are often under their under the care of their doctor for low back pain or uh, some joint pain where they routinely take a non-steroidal like, um, uh, like ibuprofen. I don't know of any particular concern for the eye 
above the normal concerns that someone would have in, in moderating doses of ibuprofen in general um, for, uh, for in general body health. So I, I would treat what you need to get treated, but treat it in the way that your doctor prescribes. Great, and appreciate that. And, and related to that, um, another similar question about medication for hypertension or thyroid. Any uh, factors that um, this person should be aware of in terms of hypertension and thyroid medicine affecting their AMD? Not really. I think, again, in those cases, I think it's very important to treat your hypertension because, you know, if we think of, you know, what are risk factors for AMD in big epidemiologic studies where people have looked at, and they're usually in, you know, heart disease studies or, or something like that, and they look at levels of macular degeneration, there's some of the same risk factors for people's heart disease, like high blood pressure and high lipids may have a slight effect on AMD. So I think kind of the way to look at it is in order to decrease my chances of having AMD even maybe just a little bit, to go ahead and make sure I've got those other things in order by treating my high blood pressure, treating my high cholesterol, and that sort of thing. And again, as long as you're using those under a doctor's supervision uh, at a normal dose, then that's not something that I would worry too much about for the AMD. That's great. Uh, thank you. And kind of just a sort of final question on that and the sort of uh, topic of other medicines and other health problems. Can a Diane from Texas is wondering, can AMD be a, a factor or an indicator of other health problems? Well, I, I think just in the – it's a tricky question because as you might guess from the, the name of age-related macular degeneration, the number one risk factor is age. And age is a pretty high risk factor for a lot of conditions. So as yep. we get older, we're more likely to have high blood pressure and we're more likely to have um, high cholesterol and all those sorts of things. And even things like diabetes get more common as we get older. So, um, you know, it is very, it would be very uncommon to identify, oh, somebody has AMD and then that lead to the diagnosis of some other sy systemic condition. But routine monitoring of eye health is important and a look at the retina because sometimes that can turn up other things like diabetes and that sort of thing. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, just associated with systemic conditions, again, there's probably a little bit of association with heart disease and the same sort of things that, you know, risk factors that your cardiologist is going to talk to you about for, uh, you know, eating right and getting exercise. Boy, those things don't hurt at all for AMD. Yeah, certainly, certainly good advice. And uh, Dr. Brantley, I just want to kind of conclude with sort of a big picture question. When you think about, about your your lengthy experiences uh, in the research lab and in the clinic seeing patients, do you have any, you know, whether it's big picture advice you'd give to, to patients and their families that are concerned or any other common perceptions or misperceptions or advice that you would encourage our, our listeners to take to heart? Sure. I, you know, and just in relationship to this call, I think I would just encourage patients or or their spouses or their children who are taking them to the eye doctor to feel free to ask questions. Um, why are we using this drug? Why, I mean, some of these great questions that were asked today, why this vitamin? Why this drug and not this one? Why are we doing it every month and not every two months? Now, 
And some of those questions come from, again, knowing somebody where they go see their doctor and it's done a little bit differently. And the other point to, to remember is what I mentioned earlier is that AMD is not exactly the same in every person and doesn't respond exactly the same to treatment. There are three different kinds of injections, Avastin, Lucentis, Ilea. Some people do, I mean, all of them work. All of them don't work for every person, and all of them don't work equally well in every person. And so doctors are going to try really, really hard to get the best treatment for you. And right now, the best way we do that is by treating and seeing how you respond and modifying accordingly. So it's not surprising that some people may get more injections than others, and some people may get injections more frequently than others. And that's all okay. Um, but feel free to ask questions, and doctor probably has a really good reason for doing it that way, and he or she will be able to tell you, and that'll make you feel a little bit more comfortable about your treatment. Yeah. Well, that's great advice. I really think it is very, you know, good when it's a positive two-way conversation, um, uh, you know, at, at the clinic. And Dr. Brantley, um, once again, thank you so much for being a part of the chat. I think today you gave some some great advice. It was very very clear and concise, and I hope people uh, found it helpful and empowering. And what thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to be with all of us today. Certainly. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Well, this concludes today's Bright Focus chat. Thank you to Dr. Brantley, and thank you to uh, all the listeners today who submitted some, some great questions and uh, made for very helpful discussion. Thanks. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.